Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 11, but we're going to study verses 5 to 11. We're in part two of the temptation of the king. We left off last time where Jesus has been led into the wilderness. There were three particular temptations that the serpent, Lucifer, Satan, the enemy, whatever title you want to give him, comes and directly confronts Jesus with. The first one was turn stone into bread. <coughs> Excuse me. The second was to have Jesus act independently in a way that flaunts who he is. Self-satisfaction, testing God, we'll see that. And then the third was the pursuit of supremacy. He's going to offer him all the kingdoms of this world and try to get Jesus to trade in his eternal dominion for a temporal one. If you'll stand one final time, let's give honor and reverence to the Word of God and read together in verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. That is God's word to you today. Let's be seated and go to him one more time together in prayer. Father, as we dig into the second and third rounds of this confrontation between our adversary and certainly your adversary and our Savior, help us please to love him all the more, to worship him all the more because of who he is and what he's done, and then help us to apply these truths faithfully. We ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be active. There'll be so many unique situations today that we are all facing, and we need your help to respond to conviction. And so, direct us and guide us. Highlight that particular truth in our minds that we ought to go today, tomorrow, and onward, and obey, and put into action. Help us not to be hearers, but doers. I ask for your blessing on my preaching and service to my beloved family here, that I would be a good and faithful servant to present your truth and nothing but the truth, to encourage and exhort them forward with application, to see myself in that as well, knowing that I, with them, need your truth. Thank you for what you've done in the Villarreal sisters' life, for the faithfulness of their parents and for the seeds of the gospel planted that have come to fruition. Bless us today with a high view of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Diedrich Bonhoeffer once wrote about Satan's goal with temptation as not necessarily getting you to hate God, but to cause you to forget God. That's what you need to remember. The goal of our adversary isn't so much to turn you into a God-hater. You're already, if you are a believer in Christ, you're already saved. You love the Lord. You've professed faith. You've been following after Him. He knows that He can't steal your salvation, and so what He will attempt to do is to distract your sanctification or derail your view of God. That's His goal. And so right now, you can think in your own life, are there, are there ways in which I'm forgetting God? Are there distractions? Usually, in our American context, these are good things that we begin to over-pursue, but most certainly we are not immune to bad things and trials. Trials can often shift our eyes away from the Lord. And pretty soon, we're focused on our own pain, not that God doesn't care, but all we're focused on is our pain, and soon that turns into entitlement, frustration, and then eventually uh, a fist shaking against God. Why are you doing this to me? Why have you done this? Why have you allowed this? And soon the enemy is cheering, although he has not again stolen your salvation, he has distracted and derailed you, and you have forgotten God. All the more he would love for you to just enjoy the American dream and not be a fervent worshiper that you would enjoy a, a kind of American Christianity where God and country are, are these checklists and you're conservative and, and you're wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world and you've got a good job and things are going well for you and you begin to just kind of live on cruise control. And then we expect what I would call a, a version of the prosperity gospel, although we wouldn't call it that, but it's like the diet version, prosperity gospel light, which is I obey God, therefore things should go really good for me. He blesses my obedience, which is a principle, but not a guarantee all the time, or He blesses it in ways you don't think of. Or if uh, something bad is happening to me, well, you know, then I must not be doing all the right things. The enemy would love for you to veer too much to the right or too much to the left to forget God. If I were to catch you in some sin, let's say it was adultery, it's not that you didn't know you were married. Of course you do. But you've been lured by the temptation, and you've thrown yourself into the sin to the degree that you lose all inhibition, and you forget the weight of your marriage covenant. You may say, I, I, of course I know I'm married. I remember I'm married. But you succumb to the forces of temptation because you have forgotten the weight of your covenant. In these temptations, Satan places Jesus in positions that are meant to ensnare him into self-serving sins. There's uh, that in the turn the stone into bread. Hey, feed yourself. Come on, get yours. You're the Son of God. And then there's the lust for superiority and then, of course, supremacy. It's an appeal to the human longing for personal satisfaction and glory. And here is kind of the application kicker for all of us. We all go through that, unfortunately. I wish it were just yearly. Maybe, maybe quarterly wouldn't be so bad, but it is what it is daily, isn't it? Every day, you and I are in the fight of our life. My glory or His. My supremacy or His. Serve myself or serve Him. And, and like a man 
enduring the daunting walk of heading down the Las Vegas Strip. The snares of the enemy lie on the right and the left, but Christ keeps his gaze on the Father throughout the entire ordeal, refusing to forget who he was and is and why he had come. There are three particular kind of categories we've given to these temptations. We did one last time, which was to act independently. If you haven't caught up, that's on YouTube. But two and three today will be to flaunt superiority. That's the the first one, but the second one overall. And then third and finally, we'll look at the temptation to chase supremacy. Let's look at this second one together in verses five and six. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And, quotes again, on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here, by whatever spiritual or supernatural means, the devil and Jesus have gone to, transported to, the pinnacle of the temple. Some say it's, it's more of a vision, but either way, you've got a supernatural event in which both Jesus and the adversary, Satan, the devil, are on the pinnacle of the temple. Modern archaeologists and historians, they're not 100% sure exactly where this was, but they've got a pretty good idea. Best estimates put the pinnacle of the temple around Solomon's portico. Just think of this massive porch on top. And it was on the edge of the Kidron Valley, about 450 feet down was the drop. And so you got to picture Jesus and the devil there. It's the equivalent today of, of, of standing on or being told to jump off of about a 40 to 45-story building. And then this question, if you are the Son of God, or this statement, again, it's not doubt. It's assuming that He is the Son of God. So Satan essentially is saying, you're the Son of God. And then he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. That's where he's getting those statements from. He'll command His angels concerning you, and He will not strike your foot against a stone, and he twists it. He takes the passage out of context. It's about the security that God offers his people, and when they trust in the Lord, they have that. But he takes it out of context, and he turns it into a test of the Lord. The psalmist is not talking about that. The stumbling that he mentions in that psalm Satan kind of reads into Jesus' situation into apparently just throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And I want you to think about this truth in the midst of this text, that even Satan quotes Scripture. And when he does, it's out of context. And when he pulls it out of context, his goal is to twist it and misuse it to ultimately misdirect you. That's the goal, that you would misapply and misunderstand God's Word. And when you experience Scripture in your life, being twisted, being misapplied, being taken out of context, I want you to think about that reality. That could come in different forms. If we were to be really honest with each other and kind of just look in the mirror, I want you to think, and I will as well, of decisions that we make, we know deep down they're not God-honoring decisions, are they? They're really about us. But we are so good at taking the Bible out of context twisting it just a little bit to use it 
for our own desires, and we justify our decisions. I want you to think about that. At the same time, I want you to think proactively and protectively of your own life. When you see or hear Scripture being taken out of context and twisted, you don't need to say, oh, all those people are demonic, or every preacher that does that is demonic, or your sweet friend that just keeps, you know, putting new bumper stickers on his or her car, and it's another verse out of context, or you go to your precious grandmother's house, and there's one on the mantle or in the bathroom. You know, we all have those. Sweet grandmother went to Hobby Lobby, and she got a bunch of things and decorated, and they're all out of context. I don't want you saying, Satan is at work in this house. You know, calm down. I want you to think, though, deeply about when you are exercising discernment and you're trying to assess, when you have the Bible being pulled out and misused, what you have there is the work of the enemy, trying to get people to misunderstand God so he can misdirect their lives, which is why you need to diligently study the truth. What else would we do? And Satan's approach here is as if to say this in kind of layman's terms, go ahead, Jesus, show off, flaunt your superiority. You're the son of God. Throw yourself down. Doesn't the Bible say he won't let you get hurt? He won't even let your foot strike a stone. Come on, just a little show to pass the test of who you are. Do you know what this is flavored with? What I think of is Genesis chapter 3. And the way that he first approached a human being with his demonic attempt to derail and misdirect. I want you to turn there so I can just show you this, get your eyes on it, and kind of get this into your heart and in your head. Maybe you want to jot down uh, some more notes about this text, and maybe you've never thought about these things or you have, and it's a good reminder. Let's just go take a tour in history to the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, in verses 1 through 6 and then 7, we've got the moment that led to you and I kind of living in this struggle that we do with sin, unfortunately. But there's lessons here. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Crafty means cunning. It's how a predator operates. He says to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden right away. Who can catch it? That's a lie. God never said, You can't eat of any tree in the garden. And that's the strategy right away. Temptation is usually introduced with some kind of questioning about God's authority in your life or a misrepresentation of what He's actually said. He wants to undermine the authority of God. The woman said to the serpent, from the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, and don't miss this, you shall not eat from it, she's right, or touch it or you will die. Eve corrects what the serpent has twisted, but she's already begun to slip. See, God never said, you can't touch it. He said, don't eat. She's actually misrepresenting what God has actually said, though not with sinister intent, of course, but 
She's engaging in this dialogue. She's begun to entertain it. And I want you to already be thinking about the application and the contrast. When Jesus is dealing with Satan in the wilderness, is he really dialoguing with him? No. Satan tempts, Jesus responds with Scripture and purpose. It's almost like Satan is a flea, and he sort of lands, flick, lands, flick. There's no real entertainment. Like, hey, so actually, there's no real dialogue here. Eve, on the other hand, engaging in dialogue with the serpent, much less forceful. God never said in chapter 2, verse 17, you can't touch it. She's less discerning. Maybe, maybe she's quite intrigued. It's an intoxicating thing to entertain sin and the deceptions of the enemy. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you will eat, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's got Eve sucked into the conversation, friends, falling for his misrepresentations, and then he goes further. Notice that is an outright lie. He impugns God's Word, but also God's motives. God's really just jealous. He's kind of a killjoy. He doesn't want you guys to know what He knows. He doesn't want you to experience what He has. You know, if, if you do this, then you're going to be like Him, and God is sort of this narcissist with a big ego, and He doesn't really want humanity on His level, so He doesn't want you to enjoy being all-knowing. You're going to be like God, the invitation to enlightenment, the invitation to some kind of upper-level experience. And don't we love that? We love a good deal. We love limited-time offers. You know the best way to scam you and I is to hear this, limited quantity. What do some of you do? You know. I'm not going to call you out, and no one's been sending me emails. I just know because this is my wife and I in our life. It's either me telling her, honey, we need to act now. This is a great deal. And I'm not seeing it objectively, vice versa. Sweetheart, this 20% off coupon, if I don't pull the trigger now, and I'm like, this is, we're going to go broke saving money. Like, that's what we say to each other. Satan loves to make us feel, I'm not saying it's satanic when you coupon, God bless you. Buy the tickets before they sell out. There are limited seats. I get all that, but just hear me on this. By way of principle, we love the invitation into what no one else is getting. You'll love a good painting where it's like 14 of 50. Only 50 of these were made, and I got one. Satan invites Eve into the upper echelons of wisdom and intellect. And as it was in Genesis 3, friends, so it is in Matthew 4, the serpent, Satan, Lucifer, the adversary, the destroyer, the tempter. What does he do? Oh, Jesus, throw yourself down. Put God to the test. Show it off. Act independently, just like the stone to bread. Okay, but how about this? It's this idea of show off who you are. You're the Son of God. Flaunt your superiority. Test God. Show off. And all this would be rooted in a lack of trust in God. Jesus 
would eventually totally show off who he was. So that is as well a, a bit of a juxtaposition for people. They think, well, why is this wrong? He's going to show off that he's the Son of God anyway eventually. He's going to do miracles. He's going to walk on water, though news about him is going to spread. I mean, he's going to turn five loaves and two fish into a feast. What's the big deal if he throws himself off the temple right now? Because it is not the Father's will at this moment. And he's only going to obey the Father's will and only going to put on display who he is under the authority of God's will for him. You and I, we may be gifted in what we say and what we do, blessed in what you make, wealthy in what you have, wise in what you know, or important in who you are. But for the Christian, none of those points are about you. You and I are not ever invited, encouraged, or uh, given authority to act independently of our own will. Every gift, every resource, every breath is all about what for the Christian? The will of the Father directing your steps and mine. And so I think we need to ask big questions. Am I kind of flaunting my superiority or, or who I am or what I do or what I know for my own purposes? Or am I humbly aware that Maybe if I'm something in some way, which of course you all are, you're God's children, He's gifted you and purposed you, there, there is a, a joyful status in who we are, quote unquote, as the children of the living God, but we operate in all of it according to the will of God, not our own. Jesus fires back, verse 7, on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is Deuteronomy 6 verse 16. And I've added verse 17 for context. It'll be on the screen. We can read it together. It says in that text, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested Him at Massa. Verse 17, you should diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. The situation in the text that Jesus quotes is very important for you and I to understand the Word of God here. If Jesus quoted it, isn't it important that we know what in the world is going on? So I want you to turn there as well. Go back. Uh, if you've gone back to Matthew, go back to Exodus. If you're uh, already in Genesis, just turn one book over, very, very short, not a lot of mileage to get there, Exodus 17. And I just want to read this together and walk you through what's happening, because it all leads to one truth that you and I can apply. It'll be very convicting and very helpful for us. Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The story really speaks for itself. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. And there's no water for the people to drink. So the people, they've escaped Egyptian slavery. They're out in the wilderness wandering. They camp. There's no water to drink. Walked you through it last week. There's been a number of things that have happened. Israel's been well cared for, well loved, lots of God's provision. In chapters 12 and 13, all the way into chapter 32, very clear what God has done, and they continue to be unfaithful. Let's keep reading. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? What's he saying? He's gotten frustrated with them. You people, 
God has done it every time. It's like they're still putting their tents together maybe is what I imagine. They've barely set up camp. And they're saying, Moses, where's the water? God just brought us out here to not let us starve to death. Okay, fine. We've got some manna from heaven. There's some things going on. But now we're just going to have no water. So what's even the point? They've got no business complaining about God. No business testing the Lord. But the people thirsted for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, why now have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cries out to the Lord, what shall I do to this people? I just picture Moses saying, listen, I know you appointed me to lead them, but they aren't mine. They're yours. What do you want me to do to these people? Your call. The Lord says to Moses, after Moses says, a little more, they're going to stone me. Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I'll stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you'll strike the rock. Water will come out that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place, there it is, Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? All of this is rooted in one single truth. The core of testing God is you don't trust Him. That's their issue. That's yours. That's mine. I put them to the test because you know what? I really don't trust them. And the invitation to act is an invitation to not wait on the Lord, but to take it by force and say, I'm going to do something. Jesus is invited to make it happen outside of God's timing. Israel, they complain, they murmur, they sinfully test God. They're not going to wait on the Lord. Why? They didn't trust. Israel did this constantly. So do we. Oh, but Christ, what does He do? He relives that experience in the wilderness, and He succeeds where Israel failed, modeling once again that He is the Messiah who has come. He will not fall short as Moses did. He will not only bring the promised land, but He will become the king of the promised land. He will not have to stop short. He will not fail while others did. He passes the test and only operates under the authority of the Father. And then finally, temptation number three, this third one, to chase supremacy. Verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Just bow. He's bribing Jesus. This is by far the least subtle of all the temptations, isn't it? Spout out and worship me. How about this? I'll give you everything that I'm the prince of the power of the air over. I'll give you everything that I'm the lowercase g, God of this world over, and you just worship me. That's an invitation to perhaps make Jesus one of his generals. You know, we can, we can join forces together. And notice the terms here that Satan brings to the table. What does he say? Don't miss that phrase. Kingdoms of this, where? 
world. He has no authority to bring him or give him or offer him the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. All Satan can do is offer him a short-term pleasure, an interim feeling of satisfaction that does not last. Is that not the temptations that come to you and I, that beckon us at the front door every day? Come and trade your eternal joy. Come and trade your satisfaction. Come and trade a Christ-centered perspective and have what you want right now and feel what you want right now and get what you deserve right now. There's this right now imminency to temptation. I want you to think about that feeling so that this week as it happens, even today after the service, maybe even during, you're, you're, you're seeing that for what it is. When it comes, you can identify it and say, I know exactly what this is. And you can exercise discernment. Satan is always trying to get you to trade it in. After condescending to take on human flesh, I mean, Satan could technically, in his own deceived mind, offered Jesus kind of a promotion, right? He came from heaven to earth. He takes on man, and Satan says, hey, this humbling thing, very nice of you to come through the virgin and grow up like you did. Very humble, Nazareth. But here, I got an offer for you. Take a step up. Instead of being the laughingstock, instead of being persecuted, you know, the the cross, it's going to be agonizing. I say that for your sanctified imagination, if you will. Because, of course, Satan doesn't know the full plan of God, but you have to understand there's this imminency of defeat within him. He's not playing with a foe that he's ever beaten. He's continued to just take an L all the way through from OT to now. All that's coming is the cross. Maybe, just maybe, he can invite Jesus into a sort of quasi-promotion. You could be more than what you are right now. Dominion can be yours but it would have only been temporary. Here's what I want you thinking about. Matthew chapter 4, Satan offers a very limited scope of authority. Matthew 28, in the final verses of the book, Jesus declares his absolute authority. Why in the world would he trade what's coming for what Satan was offering there? What a short-sighted trade Hoping Jesus would take the bait, he would not. He would eventually tell his disciples, all authority has been given me. And you know what I love the contrast in Matthew? We have Satan taking him to a high mountain. And in Matthew 28, in the verses just prior, we'll get there. I don't know, when your kids are in high school, we get to chapter 28. We'll just go verse by verse. And by the time we get there, you're going to see that Jesus is on a high mountain. And now in the same way, in the same place that Satan tempted him to trade it in and and bow to his authority, Jesus declares his own authority. And Jesus knew and would face the cross, persecution, but hadn't lost sight of the future dominion he would exercise over heaven and earth. So I have two reflection questions for you to be thinking about today and this week. Number one, how worthy of your worship is Jesus? Who is he? What has he accomplished? He refused to trade suffering on the cross for temporal supremacy. He's worthy of our worship because he's the one for whom earthly glory was still too low for his lofty status. It was too cheap for the treasure 
that he was and is. What Satan offered couldn't even tip the scale compared to the weight of his glory. How worthy of your worship is Jesus. You don't belong to you. You don't exist for you. You exist to worship him because you're not the one. I'm not the one. He's the one. He came. He conquered. He saved. He redeemed. He delivered. And he's coming back one day to establish his throne forever. And he, even in a now but not yet way, has all authority. Nothing is unfolding in your life. Nothing's happening to you or in you or around you that doesn't first pass through his capable hands. He allows certain things, even if he's not the author of evil and the author of sin, he may even allow things for a time to accomplish his greater purposes. He is in complete control. If he was worried, he would have taken the trade. But he already knows the end from the beginning. Number two, the question has to be asked, are you chasing your own glory or his? And I know it's such a churchy question, and you and I, we all know how to answer it. Sunday school, I'm chasing his glory, living for his glory. You know, it's all about him. It's all about him. Yes, I know that you know and we know the Christian Sunday answer, but I want you to think about it in your decisions, in your words, in your resources, in your relationships, in your witness. Look at your life. Are you chasing your own glory or His? Isaiah 42 verse 8 is as much a declaration as it is a warning for us. I am the Lord. That is my name. That's Yahweh. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. God does not share. He will not share your worship and your adoration. This is important for us to think about. Satan hates that verse because he loves when you abandon the worship of God to chase glory for yourself. Like Jesus, an eternal kingdom and a reward awaits, and Satan invites you to trade it in. Why wait? Have it now. Do what you want. And you've got to see it for what it is, trading your eternal satisfaction for temporary, meaningless supremacy. Friends, I'll tell you, it's better to be the laughing stock of the world for now because we know what God has promised in the future. Amen? I'm good with whatever happens this year. I'm good with whatever happens next year. I'm going to do my part. You want to do yours. You want to take a stand for Christ. You want to be active in our world. You want to be salt and light. And by the way, it's not being salt and light. You already are described as salt and light. So you're already salty and flavorful, and you go out in the world, and you're supposed to create a taste wherever you go. Do all of that, but understand Many times over, living for Christ and His glory, living for what's eternal, will make you flat out unacceptable to the world. It's a good trade. His pleasure over ours and over the kingdoms of this world. Jesus says in verse 10 and 11, beginning with these two words, Go, Satan, get lost, for it's written... You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to, to minister to him. They began to bring comfort. It's victory in two words. Go, Satan. You know what I love? He has to obey. 
One of my favorite illustrations is when you have the demoniac and the demons inside of him. When Jesus says, who are you? Remember that? What's your name? They say, legion, for we are many. Legion, about a thousand soldiers. We are many. And then they say, we know who you are, basically. So, so listen, please just cast us into those pigs. They, they beg and plead that the Son of God would be a little merciful on them. He commands all of darkness. He commands demons. He commands the devil, not with an exhausting, sweaty exorcism that lasts seven hours and you need olive oil on everything and you're just kind of, Satan, go, not today, Satan. And people are flying all over the ceilings and crawling over things and it's a paranormal, weird movie. No, he says, go, Satan. James says even the demons believe and they shudder. They're scared of him. That's the Jesus you serve. That's the Jesus who owns you. And the Bible says you've been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. He owns you. You've been bought. You belong to no one. You can walk around and say with total confidence when you're a true believer, I belong to Christ, and you do. That's the authority he has. Why in the world would you ever trade that type of ownership and belonging and confidence and identity for some cheap gimmick offered by Satan? There's no need. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy for a third time, worship and serve no one but Yahweh. And it's the final contrast between where Israel has failed and Christ succeeds. They couldn't help themselves. Oh, they just had to worship the false gods. They just had to get a little something for themselves. They, they had to marry the wrong women. They forgot his goodness. They selfishly rebel. They pursue their own desires. They sacrifice children. They wander in rebellion. They complain, they fight, and they bowed to the fleeting influences around them in the world. You and I may not be original Israel, but they serve as an illustration still today of what you and I falter into. We're not unlike Israel. And therefore, how great is our need of Christ who conquered the enemy who bore our sins on the cross, who paid the debt we could never repay, who won victory where all had been lost, those who saw the cloud by day and the fire by night, those who were fed by the hand of God, those who were given water through a rock, those who heard and saw the thunder, the lightning, the voice of God, those who had those close-up experiences, if you will, to, to these manifestations, they couldn't keep their feet on the path. If they needed a coming Redeemer, so also do we. Without Him, we can do nothing. Without His victory, we'll have none. Isaiah 53, 6 reminds us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord, Yahweh, has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. Maybe over these last two weeks, you're thinking about temptation, and all you can think about there is you sit silently, and you kind of hope, like, please don't look at me. Please look over me, and I hope no one knows, and I hope no one, that you feel like all eyes are on you. They're not. It's just conviction of the Holy Spirit that you have been in sin or living in sin or rebelling against God, and what he does is remind you of who you belong to. 
The issue of giving into sin and temptation is an identity issue. You've forgotten who you are. There's that forgetfulness that the enemy wants to lure you into. The words of Isaiah remind us. The glory of the cross is that He paid your debt. He caused our iniquity to fall on Him. We've all gone astray. Everybody sins. You will fail. You will not be perfect. And where do you go? Into into hiding, into shame, into retreat, further into rebellion? No, you run to the foot of the cross. You run to Christ. You look to Him. Maybe you're here, you've been serving yourself too much lately. Maybe you've been lured into taking action when you should be patiently waiting on the Lord. Maybe you've been cycling in a pattern of feeling superior because of who you are, what you have, what you know, what you do. Maybe there's some way that you have been flirting with the world and playing around, dialoguing with the temptations of the enemy. In what ways have you been trading eternal perspective for temporary pursuit? That's the question that we should be asking. And in light of the truth, what needs to change today? I think when we look at this text, we see two things. The beauty, perfection, power, authority of Christ, no doubt. That's who you anchor yourself to. Rather, he's anchored himself to you. I also believe that there is a reminder that in the war against temptation, we are not without a strategy, and it's won by looking to the victory of Christ, by living in each moment for Christ, by seeking only the supremacy and the glory of Christ. Christians are those who, because of the gospel and because of His grace, trade nothing for this world but only with eyes set on eternity. Follow Christ and bow down to Christ alone. Let's pray. 